Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hello, this is Asia Tech Podcast, Asia Matters. My name is Graham Brown. You can get this and all the other podcasts at atp.show. Asia Matters is about the insights from the Asia Matters Report, which you can get from the website I just mentioned. Download for free. Get all four parts of the Asia Matters Report. So why does Asia matter? Well, let's talk about the people who are moving to Asia, because this really is the tip of the spear when it comes to measuring that shift from west to east and understanding how Asia matters. Because if Asia matters enough, people will pay the price to uproot from their homes and move there because it matters enough to them, either in the sense that they can feel the opportunity or maybe they fear missing out. So let's have a look at what's happening in the context of people moving to Asia. And if you were to have a look at a lot of the interviews on Asia Tech podcasts, so go and check out atp.show, you'll see that there is that common theme of people who have moved to Asia from the outside. And I find that those stories are quite fascinating, not necessarily from Europe or America to Asia, or sometimes it's from one part of Asia to another, like, for example, moving from India to Thailand. What each of these stories contains is a story, a narrative about somebody who's stepped outside their comfort zone, who's left the comfort of familiarity and moved to a new place in search of a new life, effectively, whether, again, that was opportunity or fear of missing out. Now, in the Asia Manners Report, there's a chart which you'll be familiar with, which breaks down this shift. It's called Cultural Acceptance of Asia. It breaks down the shift. It's three S-curves that sit back to back. Three waves of immigration to Asia in the tech ecosystem. And I break these waves down into pioneers, opportunists, and followers. And I want to talk a little bit about this tonight because... I think what's happening is we're entering a new era. We're entering a new phase in this, uh, you know, this Asian tech ecosystem where we're moving out of the phase where Asia was a bit of a risk for people, but it was a calculated risk into a phase now in the next couple of years where people are going to start looking at Asia and saying, look, you know, if you're not in Asia, you're missing out. I think that's starting to happen. So I want to talk about that because there are people who are interested in Asia. There are people who have moved to Asia. And there are people who are trying to weigh up all those decisions about what Asia means to them. So Asia Matters Tonight is all about moving to Asia. I'll talk a bit about my own story. I'll talk about some of the guests I've had on Asia Tech Podcast and I'll talk about what I believe to be the meta trends. And these are meta trends which are not meta trends that I've made up. I think these are meta trends that should be identified by other people. And I want to go back to a well often cited quote by Jim Rogers. Again, Jim Rogers, the adventure capitalist, also author of Street Smarts, Hot Commodities, A Bull in China, Investment Biker, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He's the man. He knew about market opportunities in the old communist bloc, as well as in China, long before anybody else in the world was talking about them. He was a real pioneer. Now, he said, 
in his book, I believe it was Street Smarts. He said, if you were smart in 1807, you moved to London. If you were smart in 1907, you moved to New York City. And if you were smart in 2007, you moved to Asia. Now, he moved his family from a comfortable life in New York, where he was the partner in the Quantum Fund with George Soros, to Singapore. I believe he's got two daughters, and he his daughters both speak Mandarin. So he has a design for them. He obviously believes this is the best way to prepare them for the future by moving to Asia. Even though New York was probably, you know, for him and his business in finance, the center of the world. So that, in a way, is stepping outside the comfort zone. And it takes somebody like Jim Rogers, who could have easily had a comfortable life just sitting in his New York office. He had the world coming to him. He had the track record of working with Soros and the Quantum Fund. He didn't need to go out and seek new, you know, new boundaries, new markets, but he chose to. So he's very much that pioneer stage, which I talk about, which is stage one in that transition from West to East. So these are the people that moved to Asia when Asia was still a risk. So, you know, I moved to Asia in 1995 at the end of the Japanese bubble. And if you want to know about the Japanese bubble, I talked a lot about Japan and China and comparing these markets in a previous Asia Tech podcast, which was all about trying to understand China's trajectory by looking at Japan's past. And there's some pretty crazy, is the only one I can use, pretty crazy figures to gauge the growth of Japan back in the bubble era. And that's what attracted me to Japan and Asia in particular, because I knew there was an opportunity in Asia. I knew it was a big risk and I wanted to go and explore and travel a little bit. And, you know, why not go to Japan? I went and taught English in the 1990s, right? Which was for a young graduate, a great opportunity. It was a well-paid job a chance to travel the world and work in a new environment, learn a new language and be part of an up and coming culture, a, a growth economy, which was not an English speaking economy and it's outside of Europe, part of the new world. But this was, you know, I'd made my decision in the nineties and by 95, I got there, the bubble had already finished. Those days of double digit GDP growth were over the days of a million dollar golf club memberships which I talk about in the, the last podcast, are gone. But I'd already committed to moving to Asia. And back then, 1995, Japan was the only player in Asia that was worthy of somebody graduating who had options and who had choice, who could choose the world, really. You know, back in 1995, China wasn't even an option. There was maybe Taiwan, Hong Kong, maybe Singapore was really nothing like it is today a lot more based on manufacturing, um, just at the time, really, not even a major player in the electronics market. Taiwan, as I said, again, would have been based on semiconductors. Hong Kong would have been all about finance and only just sort of, you know, the, experienced the changeover and so on. All that was just sort of in the pipeline, working its way through. So really, Japan was the only option in the 90s. So for me, it was like going into the frontier. And this is stage one of that shift. 
And the real driver for those people in stage one, and this is sort of the 20 years, I believe, from like the 80s to the end of the 90s, is what the heck? What the heck? Let's go to Asia. Let's go to Asia Asia for the hell of it. It's going to be fun. It's going to be crazy. But we'll learn something and we'll have great stories to tell our grandkids. You know, I'll come back and I'll tell them about the $100 melon and uh, the vending machines when you can buy whatever you like. And all those kind of stories which impress people about living in a different culture. But as a career move, yeah, it's a bit of a diversion. But, you know, I'll add something to my resume. So those were the pioneers. We've changed a little bit now. The current phase that we're seeing the end tail of is the opportunist phase, where Asia has been the next big thing. And this really started in the early 2000s. And, you know, this is where we first started to see people move to China. People moved to China before the Beijing Games in 2008. And really, it was a risk, but it was a calculated risk. It was a calculated risk because they saw a market in development. They saw opportunities. So people were learning Mandarin. They saw that China was growing. They knew that this would become the next big thing. And they wanted to get in there. It was still a risk. They could have done better. They could have had a better career staying in that comfortable finance job or investment banking or the IT company, that consultancy, whatever it was. If they had stayed at home, they probably would have been better off in terms of less risk, more comfort, more security, and so on. But they chose to move to Asia in this phase. And this is still happening now. However, we're seeing this tail end of this. And the next phase is the followers. And I believe this, I, I, on the graph, if you look at the chart in the Asia Matters report, this is the era from 2020 onwards. And 2020 is a key watershed in global economic politics. Firstly, it's when China becomes the world's biggest economy. Um, you have also the Olympics in Japan. You also have a watermark in, sorry, a, a watershed event in the 2020s, which is Asia becoming the world's biggest trading block. So all of these things are happening. And also it's possibly when Donald Trump gets reelected as president. So maybe, you know, people will think in 2020, when people graduate in 2020, what are they going to think? They're going to think, what is the de facto career path for me? Do I go and work for Goldman Sachs in New York? Do I go and work for the IT company in uh, California? You know, is it entertainment in LA? You know, what do I do? Maybe at that point in the 2020s, people are thinking you've got to get to Asia. That's where it's at. If you're not in Asia, you're going to miss out. In the same way, if you wind the clock back 20 odd years, if you were Asian graduating from the best Asian universities, if you hadn't, by the way, already gone to an American university, then your career path de facto would have been to go to the West Coast and find yourself a job there. Or, you know, even better, go to Stanford University and walk out with a computer science degree. That was the sort of career path. But I think that's changing. So let's look at why that's changing and look at the drivers, because I think we're in the middle of a shift. And like any shift, like any historical event, when you're within the event itself as an actor, 
you don't have the luxury of stepping outside of the event and looking in and saying, oh, that's what it was. It always happens. You know, it's always with hindsight that we can name things. I mean, a great example is the Reformation, which was the, you know, one of the most decisive historical events in the last 500 years of human history. The Reformation being the point where the, the you know, the human society had reached a point, and this has followed the Enlightenment and so on, but had reached a point where they could now sort of look at human beings as the center of their universe and human as an actor rather than the you know, a, a subject of God, which is what they were for the, all, you know, the time beforehand. So that's sort of, you know, with the growth of science and logical thinking, scientific thinking, people started thinking about human beings and self-development and medicine and all these kind of aspects that went into the Reformation. It was a fundamental shift and it shifted power. And a lot of it was to do with the democratization of knowledge, a lot of that to do with the printing presses as well. So people had access to knowledge and literacy, which until that point, the clergy had sole control over. You know, the, those manuscript books that they wrote in the, the uh, you know, the old monasteries, which cost thousands and thousands, if not millions of dollars today, those beautifully illustrated manuscripts are handwritten and they had to be written by specific trained monks. And because they were so valuable, they had to chain these books to the pulpits in the church, right? So knowledge was very centralized and very top down, but the Reformation changed that. The printing press, the change of the relationship between human beings and and government, the change of, which was mostly monarchy at the time, the change of relationship between human beings and God and each other and science, all of that. But, you know, the word Reformation, never was used at the time. People didn't say, hey, this is the Reformation, it's happening. They, they were just lots and lots of different kind of connected, semi-connected events going on. And in the same way, I think we are experiencing a similar kind of shift and we're in the middle of it. And nobody has that kind of hindsight because we haven't done it yet to step out of it and say, this is the Reformation in the same way we say, this is the shift. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to make sense of it and name it and map it and make sense of it and say, this is happening and it's happening right now on our watch. But, you know, we'll only ever be able to confirm that it happened after the event. So 20 years, 30 years from now, we'll be able to look back and say, that was the time when this happened, when the geopolitical landscape shifted when people started shifting their focus from the West to the East, when, you know, they saw the opportunity in the East rather than the West. And it comes back to the, the, the opener here is that we see the value in uprooting and moving outside of our comfort zone greater than what we stand to lose. And obviously that risk reward, reward profile is different from everybody that's why for pioneers in the early days, they're more apt to take a much more aggressive risk. They're, they're willing to risk everything. In a way, the risk is the benefit itself for the pioneers. For the opportunists, it's a, a risk-reward balance. You know, For most opportunists, there is an opportunity 
in Asia, but it's outweighed by a bigger cost. So not just the cost of moving, the impact of the career, the risk you have to take in moving to a new country, all these kind of things. But now we're at a stage where I believe the risk is starting to be outweighed significantly by the benefit of moving to Asia. Let's talk a little bit about that because I want to explain why this is happening. So in hindsight, when we look back in 20, 30 years, we'll know why it happened. But we can't, from this vantage point we have now, say we didn't see it happen because there are people out there talking about this. There's Jim Rogers. There's me talking about this shift. There's people doing this. And it's not like we can say, oh, that sort of came out of nowhere. That's a complete surprise. It's not. It's it's happening. Why? Well, there's a slide in the Asia Matters report, which is uh, a slide from a, a quite a famous book uh, by Eve Bunting called Dreaming of an America, an Ellis Island story. And this is really going back to Jim Rogers's quote. This was, you know, if you were smart in 1907, you moved to New York City. So who was moving to New York City in the turn of the 20th century? Most of the people would have been from the poorer countries in Europe. That's where the majority of the immigrants would have come from. And, you know, it would have been old Eastern Europe. It would have been uh, those who were probably... Less, for example, it would have been less likely to be British because back in 1907, the British still thought that they were the epicenter of the world. They still thought they had an empire. They still thought they were, you know, important. And they were, but... I think by 1907, America had already overtaken the British in terms of GDP. So it had happened or it was happening. and But that sort of thinking still hadn't filtered through to the average British person who still was kind of being brainwashed into this whole idea of empire. And that sort of held true for another sort of 40, 50 years. And it was only sort of post-war that people realized actually, you know, Britain's a bit of a has-been in, in the grand scheme of things. America now holds the cards. Things are happening at much more of a pace now. If you go back to 1907, the immigrants coming to America, you know, that whole Ellis Island imagery, they would have come, they would have been sailing towards Ellis Island. They would have seen the Statue of Liberty. They would have seen this icon of freedom and of hope and of enterprise. And it signaled to people that if you worked hard, then you would have been rewarded. Here is the land of opportunity, you know, where you have the, the the freedom to pursue happiness, all the other values that inculcated within the, the constitution. And that would have been extremely attractive to a lot of people who came from a different world, a world where none of those things were possible, or a class-ridden world where you were born into... A class and that was your lot for the rest of your life so you know if you're poor you stayed poor and america really promised to change that however things change empires come and go as they all did the british empire came and went as jim rogers rightly pointed out and the american empire will come and go that is without a doubt and you know we can't deny the fact that at some point in time, 
that the American empire will be not as important as it once was. And like with the British, I was talking about those British in the early 20th century, they were so brainwashed into believing that their world was the best when that they were then blindsided to the growth of other opportunities. And it's quite common if you look at the media today to understand really what that blindsiding is. It's quite common to see the media really perpetuating this mythology because it's in their own vested interest, obviously. And there's this mythology about the millennial generation, whereas the reality is that the millennials are the least entrepreneurial of all generations. So we read a lot about millennials being, this is the most entrepreneurial generation of the time. And we read all these kind of stories and we watch the social network with Mark Zuckerberg. And we're led to believe that every millennial is a billionaire in waiting, you know, sitting on top of some kind of magic app or some blockchain AI technology, which we old people can't understand. And they're already they're all at it. They're all doing it. They're all programming. But the reality is very, very far from that. And this is why that we have this sort of blindsiding of maybe two generations between reality and you know, sort of the the onset of the shift, as you say, and the acceptance of that reality. So if you go back to 1907, maybe for the British, it took 50 or 60 years before they realized actually, wow, they're not number one anymore. So from 1907 to, you know, the late 50s and the 60s, they were still holding on to that belief that they were the most important country in the world. And it may be the same now with the shift, you know, in 2018, maybe, and things move at a pace now a lot faster. Maybe it's a generation, 20 or 30 years before Americans believe that China is possibly the most important country in the world. And, you know, they haven't established their mark yet, but 2020, when they become the world's biggest economy, is the first step in the same way in 1907 or there or thereabouts, America became the world's biggest economy, surpassing the UK. But in political terms, in military terms, it still was less important than the old empire. And we're seeing this this pattern repeated as well. And one of the reasons why it's repeated is going back to the media. The media keep telling us these myths about how it is when reality is, and you go back to millennials, that this is the least entrepreneurial generation of all. If you look at the figures from the Asia Matters report, and there's a data point here from the Wall Street Journal, which measures the share of households headed by someone under 30 that has a stake in or owns a privately held business. So if this was the entrepreneurial generation which we're led to believe by the media then those rates would be going up in 1990 it was 10% in 2000 it was about 6.5% 2010 6.5% and 2015 it dropped to just over 3% so it went from 10% to just over 3% it went down a third so that's a phenomenal drop. 
in entrepreneurship, you know, to go from a starting point of 10 to a finishing point of 3.3. Wow. Where have all those entrepreneurs gone? What's happened to them? Well, a very, very small percentage of them have gone to other countries. And we're talking about that now. And that's that shift. And an increasing number will. But I think there's something bigger going on here, which is there's a reason why entrepreneurship is floundering in Western countries, even though we still are bombarded in the media by these these imageries, these the images of successful entrepreneurs. And you know, they're still very, very successful. We still have Mark Zuckerbergs and the Mark Cubans and the Jeff Bezoses and the Richard Bransons. But in a way, these are the celebrity entrepreneurs. They're not indicative of your average entrepreneur. You know, in the same way that you know, you take any Hollywood superstar, any celeb like Tom Cruise or Johnny Depp, they are, you know, on our screens, they're in our faces, we know about them, we know their lives, but they're no more indicative of the average person's life than Mark Zuckerberg and Mark Cuban and Elon Musk, all those guys are indicative of entrepreneurship on a day-to-day basis. So, what I'm saying is, is that even though we may be aware and, you know, very conscious of these, these celebrity entrepreneurs, they don't represent the health of entrepreneurship in general. They're really just the tip of an iceberg. And we don't know just how healthy that iceberg is underwater. It has no relation to the tip of it, Right. So what's happening in the West is that this is a decline in entrepreneurship. And this is really sad because I'm an entrepreneur and I'm from the West and I see this around. And, you know, there are many, many different reasons for this. And we don't have time to go into all of the reasons. Some of the reasons are, you know, are structural. Like, for example, you know, the the taxation systems or the education system. You know, we're trying to... Uh, build a society where we can encourage entrepreneurs rather than put them off becoming entrepreneurs, making it too difficult for them. All those kind of things. Then there's comfort. We got comfortable. You know, entrepreneurs need to be hungry. They come from the people who need to make things work. Not they, they need to be successful rather than they would like to be successful. If you bring up kids and you make them too comfortable and you give them everything and you spoil them, They don't have the hunger to go out and hustle and to become an entrepreneur. That's why if you look at the data, I think 28% or 26% of Silicon Valley startups are connected to immigrants. The immigrants come to the US and they have nothing. They're the hungry ones. They're the ones who want to make it work because they have nothing to lose and everything to win. They have no baggage and they have the hunger. They want to make it work. They don't know comfort. So many reasons why entrepreneurship's in decline. But I think, you know, when you go back to the comfort zone, when it's too damn comfortable, people don't go out and hustle. People don't want to become entrepreneurs. And people don't want to up and leave their comfort zone and go and do something crazy like start a business or go to a new country. So we have on the one hand a decline of entrepreneurship in the West and we have the 
the rise of entrepreneurship in the East. You know, why would an entrepreneur choose to go to Asia in the first place? You know, those opportunists, these are the opportunists. We, let, let's forget the pioneers, which I count myself upon, uh, you know, in that group. The pioneer group will take risks. They're crazy. They'll just go and do stuff because it's bragging rights. It's a great experience. They won't do it necessarily as a calculated career move. In, in many ways, they'll sacrifice a lot to do that. Whereas the opportunists, which is 2000 to 2019 in Asia, they're coming to Asia because of the, you know, they can see the benefit of Asia for their entrepreneurial career. It gives them more opportunities. You know, if you go to a place like Shenzhen in China now, you can rock up and get opportunities to work with companies, get clients you never would have got back home. You could work with companies and brands that never would have picked up your call or returned your call back in the US or the UK or wherever. So the opportunists realized that and they're making the sacrifice of stepping outside their comfort zone and moving to Asia to take advantage of that. So that's one of the driving factors why opportunists are coming. And the opportunity as well is beyond that mobility that exists in growth markets, which also applies interestingly to women. You know, if you look at the female entrepreneurship rates in emerging markets, in emerging markets, the female entrepreneurship engagement rate, meaning the percentage of females involved in entrepreneurship is 13% compared to 10% in developed markets. So there are more female entrepreneurs in emerging markets than there are in developed markets. And a couple of reasons for that. One is the hunger that I talked about. But I think more importantly, in fast growth markets, there are no, you know, there's no there's no credence or there's no undo. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? There's no over respect for the old fashioned or traditional rules in fast moving markets. Sometimes you just have to drop tradition to make things work. And in a sense for female entrepreneurs, this is the case glass ceilings, for example, may get smashed because on the one hand, you know, they may just not have the people to fill the job. So they will take a woman, right? Even though they may be prejudiced against women, right? They will do that. So those prejudices will be challenged by an economic need. And on the other hand, they may find that, like in all these growth markets, that it's the younger people who call the shots. And there's a slide in the chart which compares um, the economic earning potentials of Chinese, Indian, and Americans. And Chinese and Indians peak 20 years before Americans do. So Chinese and Indians, their, their biggest earnings are in their 30s, whereas in the US, it's in the 50s. If that's the case, I mean, I'm assuming that younger people are more open to change, probably less prejudiced in in these economic mar in these emerging markets, and therefore there's more opportunities for women, and not just women, but you know, outsiders generally, people coming from the outsiders and make things happen. If you look at, for example, Vietnam as a high growth market, people think of Vietnam and Vietnam War. And I, as I spoke about in the last podcast, you know, huge opportunities. The Vietnam Vietnamese are very open and positive about the world and foreigners coming there and doing business there, surprisingly, given their history. So 
high growth markets, a lot of mobility, a lot of existing structures are challenged, which gives opportunity for outsiders to come in and make change if they are so inclined, if they're mentally geared towards that. The followers who come in the later stage don't want to have to challenge that. They just want to have it laid out for them. The, the second part of the opportunity is the mega cities. And I think we have, I mean, I've talked a lot about mega cities, but we have to put this into context is that there's a lot of focus on the mega cities in Asia and rightly so, because these are the engines of growth. And I've talked a lot about the Chinese mega cities. So, I mean, you know, there are 15 cities in China alone, bigger than New York. And then you consider mega cities like, for example, uh, the Shenzhen, Guangzhou, Pearl Bay Delta, which includes Hong Kong and Macau. And they're just opening that bridge between Hong Kong and Macau now. 60 million people, nearly $2 trillion in GDP. When you think about that in, in its context, it's bigger than San Francisco, the Bay Area, the greater Bay, as it's called in China. It, it returns more um, AI patents and innovation patents than San Francisco Bay does. And it's just full of growth. I mean, you know, entrepreneurs are moving there because they can sense something is happening. And just looking at the data here, as an example, the Global Entrepreneurship Monitor in 2017 said that in Shenzhen, 16% of the adult population, largely immigrants from other parts of China, are engaged in entrepreneurship. You know, and that's where you want to be. I mean, one of the reasons people love Silicon Valley is because you're surrounded by like-minded people. If you can be surrounded by entrepreneurs, wow, how amazing is that, right? If you can be surrounded by entrepreneurs, that becomes a de facto. You know, if you left behind a world where people were sort of doubtful and say, oh, you don't want to go and leave your job and start a business. You don't want to, you know, you spent 20 years working as a lawyer. Why do you want to go and throw it all away in a startup? Or, you know, you studied as a doctor. Why do you want to go and throw all those studies away in a startup? However, if you're surrounded by people who get it, and places like Shenzhen, those mega cities very much are a concentration of that culture, then there's a real tipping point. I don't know what kind of percentage you need of the population for that to happen, for that to become a magical uh, concept, a magical construct in the sense that, you know, like Silicon Valley, you know, what percentage of those people are entrepreneurs? You know, you don't have people there talking about the need for security or the need for comfort. Therefore, you know, if you're surrounded by those people, things get done at a pace. And that's why you want to go there. And that's one of the reasons why people are moving to places like Shenzhen is because that magical construct, that that zeitgeist, that culture that makes Silicon Valley special may be disappearing because right now, either it's overcrowded, Silicon Valley is overdone. Look at the price of you know, land or apartments in San Francisco alone. It's crowding out the small entrepreneur. You know, Silicon Valley has increasingly become the value of innovation and startups for mature startups. So, you know, it's the Facebooks, the LinkedIn's, the et cetera, et cetera. Those are the guys who, are, you know, the Googles, obviously, who occupying a vast percentage of Silicon Valley culture. But what about all the small startups? What, you know, where do you go when you have to pay? If you're a startup, 
and you, you know, as a, as an individual, you can't get much change out of ten thousand dollars a month to live. Um, in Silicon Valley, where do you go? Well, Silicon Valley then doesn't become a great option for you. You go looking around the world. You say, well, where else can I find something like this, but at a third of the price? Well, welcome to Shenzhen. So that's one of the reasons why people are moving. And coming back to my original point about mega cities. It's not just China. So if you look at megacity growth, and this is data from Oxford Economics, the main drivers in terms of GDP growth for megacities, interestingly, outside of China. So if you take the five fastest growing megacities in Asia, not one of them is in China, and they are Delhi, Chennai, Mumbai, Hyderabad, four cities all in India and Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. And Delhi is growing at an annual growth rate of GDP of 8.1%. And Ho Chi Minh City is at 7.9%. So let's just, for argument's sake, call that 8%. Now, if you grow 8% a year, you will double your GDP in nine years. So think about that, that in 20 years, those two cities will quadruple their GDP, which is phenomenal if you think about it. If their GDP, if their population remains constant, which it won't do, it's growing, but let's just for argument's sake, assuming it's constant, that average GDP will go from 10,000 to 40,000 in 20 years, in one generation. So a poor Asian city, which they have been, Delhi and and Vietnam's Ho Chi Minh have been poor cities for many, many generations. But they will emerge and stand shoulder to shoulder with other cities in the world. So for now, Delhi is a frontier market, still very much so. But I believe now cities like Delhi and Ho Chi Minh are now becoming opportunist markets in those three stages. Until now, there are big risks. There are many, many factors why you wouldn't choose to move to Delhi, especially especially if you're not Indian, or to Ho Chi Minh City if you're not Vietnamese. Language, culture, basic stuff like internet, just day-to-day life, th- these were big risks that you would take. For, for pioneers, it made sense because, you know, the risks was the benefit. You know, you enjoyed the fact that there were potholes in the road. You enjoyed the fact that things didn't work. There were blackouts, you know, there was corruption and so on. It kind of made life interesting. But for the opportunists, it's different. The opportunists look at this and think, okay, I'm not really interested in all those kind of like, you know, tales I can tell the grandkids. I'm interested in, you know, will this be good for me as a career move, as an entrepreneur? And they'd look at Delhi and Ho Chi Minh and say, well, maybe not. But now these cities are growing at 8% a year. There'll come a time very soon where that will be challenged and they say, actually, okay, well, maybe it does make sense for me. Maybe it makes sense for me to move to Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City because I'm in e-commerce and here I have access to big developer teams. I have access to China and a very, very uh, well-trained, hardworking population and you know, access to the whole of Southeast Asia as well. So something's happening and it's not just China. And China takes a big chunk of the biscuit, which is 
the Asian story. But there's a lot more to it than just China, which makes it fascinating because when you think about the reasons why people come here, if people don't want to move to China, well, hang on, there's a whole bunch of other countries out there as well. Just talked about India, talked about Vietnam, Singapore as well, which is one of the best startup ecosystems in the world. Hong Kong, you know, it's endless. Bangkok, I mean, if you want to move more frontier markets, Bangkok, Jakarta, Kuala Lumpur, Tokyo, obviously, Korea, you've got Seoul. You know, I probably missed out a few. Taipei, I could keep going on and on. There are many, many other cities and ecosystems which offer opportunities for everybody. And that's just going to attract a lot more people over time. I mean, if you have a look at the the uh, the report, Asian Matters report, just some of the cities mentioned in here, these don't even get any kind of prominence on the global stage in the media, Guangzhou. I mean, who knows where Guangzhou is? You know, that outside of China, maybe you've heard of it. I mean, you've heard of Canton, you've heard of Hong Kong or Shenzhen, maybe. But where is this city, right? Shanghai, you would have heard of for sure. I mean, these are sort of the more well-known ones. But, you know, when you go in, in down one level, to the less known cities, which in their own right are 10 million plus people. Wuhan in China. You know, where's that? And what what kind of a market is it? I mean, if that has 10 plus million people, then it's its own ecosystem in its own right. And you take cities like Jakarta, for example, which, I mean, depending on what you're measuring, but in terms of measuring the metropolitan area, it's 30 plus million people. You know, and you, you have Indonesia, which is 250 million people. That's a huge opportunity, especially when these markets are growing at 6%, 7% a year. So that is really attracting the opportunist. We're not quite at that follower stage, the fear of missing out, but that's that's just around a corner. So what I think is going to happen is over the next five years, we're going to see a significant increase in the amount of people moving from the West, meaning in my context, outside of Asia, to the East. And the reasons why they're moving are going to change. They're going to change from being people who came here originally as pioneers to people who came here as as opportunists to increasingly people who are going to come here because everybody else is coming here. And that's the trend that's going to start next. And one of the reasons why they're going to come here is because it's totally de-risked as a move for them. We're starting to see people like Jack Ma, the CEO of Alibaba, founder of Alibaba, on the global stage, putting a face on Chinese entrepreneurship. So, it's no longer just about white guys, which is what entrepreneurship is or has been for so long in the media in the West. You know, if you can name a female entrepreneur who gets as much coverage as Mark Zuckerberg or Richard Branson, I'd like to know who is that person. I can't name one. It's interestingly, you know, that the probably the most famous of that Silicon Valley generation is, you know, on the female side, I mean, I'm struggling. I mean, Sheryl Sandberg, as an example, but she didn't even get the, you know, you got to think about it. She got that because of her family connections. 
In the same way, I'd say that Hillary Clinton doesn't really vindicate female emancipation uh, in in the states, right? I mean, she was the wife of a former president in the same way, you know, people talk about Michelle Obama running, right? It doesn't mean that women suddenly have access or power. It just means that they're the next best thing, really, for the voters. It's the next, it's as near as you can get to getting that person in for a third term. So going back to entrepreneurship, you know, what are we talking about? I mean, what I'm saying is that increasingly we're starting to see non-white guys in the media and hopefully a lot more women because, you know, if you go to China, there are more, uh, look at the, the self-made female billionaire uh, rates in Asia compared to the rest of the world. So if you took, you took a, you know, percentage of female billionaires who are self-made versus inherited, in Asia, it's about 55%. In the US, it's 19%. And, and Europe, it's about 7%. And there's been a lot written about this. Forbes recently wrote that the last few years have been remarkable for Chinese businesswomen, so much so that China is now the de facto capital of the self-made female billionaires club. And so what I hope we're going to see in the Western media over the coming years is a lot more people like Jack Ma, obviously, who obviously aren't white, and a lot more female Asian entrepreneurs who will signal to the world that there is real opportunity here, that there's an opportunity to reinvent yourself. There's an opportunity to smash through that glass ceiling because the market's moving so fast. And, you know, you don't have to be the the wife of a famous person or the daughter, in that case, who inherited their their billions, like the Hiltons, right? You know, you don't have to be that to be successful. So let's have a look at what's changing, particularly in Asia. It's worth paying a bit of attention to this. There's a few sort of funny memes which have been floating around the internet for some time, which Asians will get. I want to talk about those. And I also want to talk about the attitude of young Asians now in terms of entrepreneurship. I think this is really important because this is really where the change is happening. So I want to talk about the two memes. There's Asian dad who, I don't know where the meme originally came from, but it's a Chinese dad. And then there's also sort of Indian dad, which is the Indian version of that. And there's two versions of these memes. And I guess if you're Asian or you're Indian, I'm sorry if you're Indian, obviously you're in Asia, but a little bit different in terms of the the meme. But let me just allow me a bit of license here. So the Asian dad is, you know, happy birthday, happy B day. He says, why not happy A plus day? And the theme, the meme follows that theme. It's like, you know, that strict Asian father who is disappointed in his kids because they're not A plus kids. And it you know, there's no, there's zero tolerance of any kind of failure. And I'm sure if you're Asian, you relate to that. And the Indian dad, similar kind of thing, but expressed in a different way. He's giving advice to his son. And he says, you know, you can be anything you want, doctor, engineer, doctor. Again, the mean being is that while Indians 
have these high expectations of their kids, they really are in the same way the Asian dad is has zero tolerance of failure. The Indian dad is like zero tolerance of risk. You know, he wants his kids to be doctors or engineers because that is a safe job. You will never get fired as a doctor. You'll work your way through to retirement. You won't die poor. Uh, a lot of the fear, you know, these are generations that came out of poverty who worry about, you know, retiring without any money, health, all those kind of things that people worried about in the West generations ago, which we've kind of forgotten about, right? So there's these two memes on the internet, the Asian dad and the Indian dad. And I guess, you know, if you were of a generation, you would recognize these themes, right? These memes. But now things are changing. There's a survey. I mean, I've just grabbed the data from the Asian Matters report. 83% of Indians surveyed said they would love to become an entrepreneur. I don't know where the data is from, but it's interesting. 83% said they would love to become an entrepreneur. How does that compare to the rest of the world? That must be right up there. That must be one of the highest rates. You know, it's not real entrepreneurship. It's, but it, the important thing is that these people are saying that they would love to become an entrepreneur rather than they would love to become a doctor or an engineer. So given the right opportunities, they will become entrepreneurs. It's just now a matter of time. Let's talk about the young Asians themselves. Let's take a quote from Kai-Fu Lee, who ex-Apple, Microsoft, Google, China. And he says that we're seeing people in their early 20s starting companies people just out of school, and there are even some dropouts. And put this into the context of China, where Asian dad would have been, I know that was Asian dad, probably in the context of American Asian dad, but as in America, the generation of Chinese would have wanted their kids to succeed in school and not take risks because their driver would have been security as opposed to fulfillment and happiness. So how would an Asian dad react to his kids becoming dropouts or starting a company in their early 20s when they had dreams of them becoming doctors or accountants or going to Stanford or whatever it may have been? For those kids now to overcome those objections, to step outside of their comfort zone, there must be such an opportunity, such a benefit, strong enough that it makes it worth their while. So for young Asians, we're starting to see the shift. So there's these two shifts going on that I'm talking about now. On the one hand, a shift of Westerners, outsiders coming into Asia. And on the other hand, a shift in young Asians themselves moving away from traditional employment careers if you like into entrepreneurship so there's a doubling up of entrepreneurship in asia and when that starts to hit a tipping point you get that kind of culture that magic foundation that i talked about in silicon valley that makes silicon valley the valley because until now it's just infrastructure money capital and access to talent it flips it goes beyond the tipping point when you have enough people there that the zeitgeist of that city or that ecosystem is one of entrepreneurship. And Shenzhen is very close. 
we're starting to see it in other places now, like Singapore, at that sort of the front of that trend, front running that trend, if you like. And we'll start to see this increasingly at more cities around Asia when your traditional career-driven uh, employees start to age through the you know the 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 ranks and start to drop out of the the workplace replaced by younger people who want to take on challenges who are given a bit more liberty who now could justify the challenge to their parents who want them to become doctors and so on and it's also compounded by these people coming from outside of asia into asia and increasing that that percentage until it hits the tipping point where it happens first i don't know but you know we talked about some of the cities that will you know become big ecosystems in their own right and if you look at you know the asia matters report there's 15 cities outlined there that's not even the, the full picture i mean there's 15 cities in china alone bigger than new york right so the 15 that I cover in the Asia Matters report from all over. But I think, you know, you're going to start to see real magic happen in the next five years in a handful of cities. And those are the cities where they have all of those factors. So the key factor, first base, if you like, is having the infrastructure to make it this a startup ecosystem. Which is, you know, does the do the roads work? Is the internet there? Is it safe? Et cetera, et cetera. That's first base. The second base then is does this have the resources to make this a startup ecosystem? Which would be, does it have capital? Does it have talent? Does it have access to the market? And in many ways, a lot of Asian cities have reached that second base. The third base then is where we're at now and does this city have enough entrepreneurs in it to make entrepreneurship the de facto way of thinking and way of doing in this city and silicon valley is there silicon valley is home run it's well not the home run it's reached all four bases it's got to the home base right the fourth base or whatever you use in the baseball analogy i don't know i don't even play that game but i'm just kind of borrowing the the terminology where the Chinese cities are getting close. So we have Shenzhen, which has, obviously, infrastructure's fine. It has the resources now, and it's very close on the de facto side with the culture. Maybe this is also happening in places like Singapore. Singapore has the infrastructure. It has the resources. Culture-wise, it's a little bit behind because Singapore has a lot more established um, industries, which would mean it a lot harder to to attract talent into startups when you, you could go and work in finance or real estate. And it's the same problem that affects places like Hong Kong as well. So I started this podcast tonight talking about why people are moving to Asia and the three the three shifts, the three phases, if you like, and how we're ending this this third phase. And I think that third phase is triggered when the that city hits third base. So what I mean is you take Shenzhen as an example is that you would have moved to Shenzhen in the eighties and nineties. If you were nuts, if you were a real pioneer and just loved the challenge, you would have moved to Shenzhen in the last 10 or 15 years because you saw an opportunity 
and you're going to move to Shenzhen in the next 15 years because of fear of missing out. Translate that into the bases. And I need I need a better analogy for this because I'm trying to work this out in my own head. But put this in the context of the bases. Why would you move to Shenzhen? Well, it has the infrastructure. It has the resources, meaning capital, talent, and access to the market. It has all those in spades, right? And the last part is the culture. So they will hit a magic tipping point, and I don't know what percentage that needs to be to make it happen, where you know any percentage of a group, you know, that, that then becomes the norm of the group, if they're the, the dominant minority, if you like. What percentage does Shenzhen need to reach in entrepreneurship for entrepreneurship to become the de facto choice for people. And then it becomes a fear of missing out because people want in on the action because Shenzhen will become the place to be. So there are probably like five cities in Asia who really have all of those elements lined up. And I think this is really the conversation, ongoing conversation we need to have in Asia matters. Which of those five cities are getting it right? How are they leading? What are they doing right and, you know, what is the future for the rest of Asia? I think it's just an exciting time. We're right in the middle of the things. And as I said before, people don't know the name of what this thing is until it's passed. You want to name it, you tell me. It's happening right now. Asia Matters, my name is Graham Brown. Go and check out the other podcasts, atp.show. Love to know what you think. You can tweet me at Asia Tech Pod. Be back next week for more Asia Matters. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.